I'm sure all of you know uh, Christopher Chavez, Associate Professor of Media Studies in the School of Journalism and Communication, and the current director of the Center for Latin, Latina, Latino, and Latin, Latinx and Latin American Studies. His research lies at the intersection of critics explores two main themes, how global media industries organize and reorganize collective identity, and the degree to which marginalized communities can be empowered within the constraints of marketplace dynamics. Uh, Professor Chavez is author of Reinventing the Latino Television Viewer, Language, Ideology, and Practice from 2015, and the co-editor of Identity Beyond, Identity Beyond Tradition and Make World Neoliberalism 2013. His research has appeared in peer-reviewed journals, including Consumption, Markets and Culture, International Journal of Communication, and Critical Studies in Media Communication. In 2018, Professor Chavez received the University of Oregon's Faculty Excellence Award. And in 2015, he received the University of Oregon's Early Career Award in Research Excellence. Uh, today, Chris Chavez will speak about his new book, The Sound of Exclusion, NPR and the Latinx Public, published in 2021 by the University of Arizona Press. Thank you for having me. And I want to begin by thanking the Oregon Humanities Center. It's meaningful to have a place on campus that supports humanities-based research. Uh, I also want to thank my colleagues in journalism and communication. I am not a journalist, but it was helpful having access to very accomplished journalists when studying in the newsroom. And so uh, that sort of information and resource was uh, extremely helpful. Um, so the book came out in November and it was sort of serendipitous because NPR was just concluding its 50th anniversary under the tagline, Hear Every Voice. Uh, and it was an important probably time to kind of audit the distinction between rhetoric and practice, sort of this rhetoric of inclusivity versus the actual broadcast standards that helped them to achieve that very goal. Uh, so it seems to be the kind of the right moment. Um, end of the book, I started off at a moment in 2005, uh, 2006, March 25th. Uh, it was uh, March, there were 500,000 demonstrators. You may have been living in LA at the time I was, and it was a significant moment um, because it seemed like there was a turning point uh, where Latinos were about to um, grab sort of the, the sleeping giant, proverbial sleeping giant awaken and taking the mantle of uh, civic engagement, being much more of a political force. Uh, so 500,000 demonstrators gathered in downtown Los Angeles to uh, protest the Stenson Brown Bill, legislation that was designed to criminalize uh, undocumented workers as well as those who need aid. So it seemed like this huge pivot moment that was about to happen. Uh, obviously it never did. In fact, there's been some studying reversal since then, uh, but it was such this moment of pro um, promise. Um, and they focus on two different types of reporting that occurred during this particular moment. So the first one was NPR, America's public radio network, at least its flagship public radio network, which fell into all of the common tropes that we see that happen in media in general, uh, describing Latinos sort of in this dichotomy of being illegal or according to their economic capacity, uh, very limited frameworks, um, as well as not including the voices of Latinos themselves. In some way, if you hear reporting of the event at this particular moment of time, a lot of it felt like a, a form of uh, foreign correspondence uh, where it didn't seem quite like they were very comfortable in these neighborhoods. Uh, translators were imported in mass. Um, and there was a really different kind of discourse that was happening on commercial radio at the time. So you had this interesting complication of the public radio, commercial radio um, binary, right? So on commercial radio, particularly Spanish language radio, civic engagement was uh, prevalent all over the place. Right? They were um, encouraging to peacefully demonstrate as well to register to vote, uh, to contact legislators, 
Uh, and this has been a longstanding tradition in commercial Spanish language radio about providing information about legal resources, community resources, um, health resources, and it's a very different kind of radio model. And again, it troubles this complication of what we consider public radio and the, the mission of public radio um, and what has actually become and then commercial radio under particular kinds of conditions and sort of that um, binary that exists between the two. So this prompted for me larger discussions because it didn't seem like NPR was meant to be this way. And I'll speak to you as an NPR listener and I feel very ambivalent about that, right? Knowing that um, I'm their ideal listener, right? I have a certain amount of cultural capital, social capital, I'm overserved by civic discourses versus what NPR was meant to be and who it was meant to serve. Uh, and so the kind of the three overarching question was, what was NPR meant to be? What has it become over its 50 years history? And third, how is it changing or adopting to an electorate or a public uh, that is becoming much more ethnically, racially, uh, and linguistically diverse? Uh, by 2050, we are entering a post-white America, right, in which uh, white Americans are going to be considered a minority. And so in what way are just media institutions in general dealing with this change? Uh, from a more specific point of view, um, the research questions going into this was how does NPR conceptualize the public that it's tasked with serving? Second, how are capitalist and racial ideologies embedded within particular broadcast practices? And then third, how do Latino practitioners working within the public radio system negotiate and at times even subvert the constraints served by NPR to their own purposes? Uh, and so the book's bifurcated, it's split into two different directions, which we'll talk about uh, in general. So why NPR? So NPR occupies a, new, a unique place in the media marketplace. So unlike commercial radio system, at least the theory goes, uh, it's meant to serve the public. And so there's presumption that it's an open rather than closed system. Uh, it's open, meaning that more people that participate, uh, that the people have access to the kinds of stories that are being told, or at least the kinds of topics that are being addressed. Um, or at least represented, right? There's a, there should be the pretense of greater inclusivity of the people or of the public uh, by definition. It also has a unique impact on how we conceptualize the public itself, who gets to be a part of the public in national public radio. So thinking about those kinds of questions versus the New York Times, right? Which is a commercial um, uh, model uh, or the New Yorker, which is a highly segmented uh, model and target audience. Um, and then part of that is, is why U.S. Latinos, right? And so I think in some cases, some of the findings could um, apply to, to different kinds of disenfranchised communities. Uh, and there is some overlap, but there is something singular about U.S. Latinos, primarily linguistic differences uh, that I'll address. And then also this continuous issue of citizenship, right? Uh, to what degree do we belong? Uh, we're constantly being seen as out outsiders, regardless of presidential tenure, citizenship status, um, been always seen as sort of the perpetual outsider, not quite American. Uh, and so that sort of tension and how this plays into how, again, NPR conceptualizes and then ultimately serves uh, the Latinx audience. Uh, and then third, because of the, the demographic projection. So uh, U.S. Latinos are currently the largest minority group uh, at 18%, exponentially will grow in the years to come. And so U.S. Latinos are becoming increasingly important to the public that NPR was tasked with serving. So in terms of the theoretical bases, just drawing really on two primary forms of literature, political economy, uh, looking at the interplay between symbolic and economic dimensions of the production of meaning. So looking at how it's funded, how media is organized, how it's categorized, uh, and then also looking at critical cultural um, studies, particularly the intersection of capitalist ideologies and racial ideologies. 
uh, and then particularly as it relates to these notions of citizenship and public discourse. Um, and so going into it, really just sort of dove in and looked at different kinds of information. So I think the first part was looking at any number of documents, both historical and current. Um, so I kind of generally categorized them by external discourses and internal discourses. So internal discourses would be like the founding reports, um, all of the commission reports from the Carnegie Commission, the Ford Foundation, that basically set up the pretext for what NPR would ultimately become in the years before 1970. Um, in addition to all the congressional testimonies, um, every so often NPR has to go before the United States Congress for appropriations. And so looking at the testimonies that happened, how NPR sells itself, how NPR um, argues for those amounts of funding. And again, um, you see a tension between the rhetoric of NPR uh, and the actual practices of NPR, uh, so government records. And then there are the public discourses. So things like the programming itself, journalistic interviews with um, key figures, uh, NPR published books, which I'll show you in examples, public service announcements, the website itself, all of them are a way of speaking to the public. Um, so here are some examples of some of the documents that I looked at. Uh, again, a public trust, the Carnegie, Carnegie Commission reports, the Ford Foundation reports, uh, some of the critiques commissioned by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, um, some of the strategic documents from audience research analysis, which, which was the research component, or partner of NPR for such a long time. And then interesting, NPR has become such a curator of its own legacy, right? They've become their own cultural producer uh, and a huge branding element, right? And so they have uh, a point of view and they've become a brand in and of themselves uh, about anything from journalistic practices and how to do them correctly, uh, to history, to music. Uh, and so they become quite the little tastemaker. Uh, and that's always kind of interesting in that they always, even to this day at 50 years being such an influential organization, position themselves continuously as quasi-amateurish, upstart, alternative media, even though they're highly influential and highly professional and highly glossy in terms of the practices that they enact. Um, and then internally, when speaking to either NPR reporters or practitioners or would-be uh, NPR reporters and practitioners, there's a whole set of discourses designed for them to teach you how to be an NPR reporter, how to report an NPR story, how to speak in an NPR voice. And so there are interesting ways of, again, codifying and then policing journalistic practices. Uh, and so that was the primary basis for the, the work that I did. And then in addition to, um, was lucky enough to speak with a number of NPR practitioners uh, at both the national level and then the station level, um, at the production level. And so I was able to speak to, for example, Bill Seemering, who wrote the original mission statement for NPR. Uh, as well as a number of hosts, co-hosts, producers, station managers, news directors, um, again, to try to understand from different vantage points uh, how they enact these everyday practices. And so, again, with these, um, I'm very appreciative of how generous people were uh, with their time, because I'm sure it could make for an awkward conversation. <laughs> and once this came out, it certainly did make for an awkward conversation. <laughs> yeah. um, I received a number of calls just as the book was coming out. It's like, I need an advanced copy. I just want to know what's being said. <laughs> so people certainly put themselves on the line and I'm, I'm tremendously appreciative of it. Um, and so the book's broken up essentially into to two different parts. The first part is on uh, practices, uh, particularly macro level practices and specifically audience construction and linguistic standardization uh, because they pretty much dictate, you know, not only who gets to be included as part of the public, 
but how it will be spoken to. So the kinds of programming decisions that are being made. And so the first part of the question asks, you know, who is the public in public radio? And here it's probably important to go into the background of what it was meant to be, the framework on which NPR was ultimately grafted onto. You know, this idea of an alternative to commercial media system goes back to the onset of radio itself. Uh, very early on, the U.S. Uh, and Congress made the decision that, that we were going to enact a public radio system, meaning that it was primarily going to be subsidized by commercial advertising. And very early on, there have been critiques about what that system would yield. Uh, and so, critics um, primarily from the Frankfurt School tradition uh, were very clear in their argument for what this meant. You know, they call it commodity listening, uh, meaning that our relationship between the station and the listener was one of really economic transitions. That happens. That's how we would be interpolated ideologically. Uh, and that there were consequences to that, right? If you cultivate a passive listener, uh, that listener is not going to challenge, um, you know, strong political issues that, that are of extreme importance. Uh, and so there's always been the need for an alternative to that. Um, and so very early on, we see 1925, the Association of College and University Broadcasting Station forms. Later, this would be, you know, redesignated as educational radio. Um, and that became sort of this loose coalition of what NPR began with essentially being fragmented on. Again, there were proponents on why this was important because within commercial radio, um, particularly thinking about the work of Yuri Habernas, who thought that there was no way that you can actually have public discourse within the framework of commercial radio. The economic pressures would be too severe that uh, any kind of conversation would be dictated by those kinds of factors. Um, and so it was precisely because of public radio's broad reach, or at least radio's broad reach, that you could reach a more diverse public um, that that held the kind of promise for the kinds of civic discourses that, that Habermas might have envisioned. Um, but what we see early on is that, that these stations um, are, are, are scrappy. In some cases, they take place in community houses, uh, in church centers, at universities. Um, so KPC is associated with Lincoln Community College. Uh, and so oftentimes these foundations serve um, as both content and then also the, uh, uh, the kind of content that's available there. But they're often marked by a sort of a noblesse oblige, uh, elevate the masses, educate the masses um, through sort of high art, uh, knowledge of history, knowledge of politics. And at this point, again, one of the consistent themes that comes up, at, at least in these very early documents, is that this radio system was meant to serve those not served by commercial radio. So commercial radio stations were going to serve consumers. Uh, people solidly in the middle class that could afford the products that were being advertised on commercial radio. But we needed a place that wasn't beholden to advertiser. And so these were the public that were the most disenfranchised, the rural, the um, homebound, uh, ethnic minorities, people who spoke English as a second language, uh, people that could be served because they were typically left out of civic discourses. And they were equally important. So that was the argument, at least, to create the system uh, that you would ultimately serve people again, not served by commercial radio system. Uh, when looking at the documents, you know, again, trying to see these, you know, where do U.S. Latinos fit into this conceptualization of the public? And they didn't. You know, when I spoke to Bill Seemering, um, who wrote the original mission statement, he, he was up front. He's like, honestly, I, I didn't think of U.S. Latinos. I thought about indigenous. I thought about African-American. Uh, those were the communities that were top of mind for me. And in a way that makes sense because in 1970s, US Latinos accounted for roughly 8% of the total population. 
uh, far different than the 20% close reaching 20% we are now. Uh, but you do see evidence that they, these communities are referred to one at the local level, but under different kinds of names. And, and kind of a common framing is that we're problems to be solved, right? And so we're the Spanish speaking literates of uh, Florida, uh, the disadvantaged, the elderly, the chronically ill, the poor, the migrants, the retarded, the ethnic and racial minorities. And so these are the kinds of uh, groups that we are interpolated in, but something that public radio could solve. Uh, and could serve. Uh, and so it's very clear that that was how the system was envisioned. And so NPR gets grafted onto this program. Uh, so it's officially established through the Public Radio Broadca Public Broadcasting Act of 1967. And I show this image at the bottom because it was really kind of the radio portion of it was a second thought, right? It was really <laughs> meant to be public television. And so there's kind of the idea that in some cases it was even scotch taped over and taped over. So I don't know how, like, how much conservative meds or not, but the idea that, it, that radio was really seen as a secondary consideration, but at the very last minute it was slipped in there and then becomes one of the key components to public broadcasting. So it sets up, so it's not truly a public radio system, but it's a privately owned corporation, the public corporation for public broadcasting that then manages these two arms, public broadcasting system, the television component to it, and the national public radio, the audio component to it. And the idea at the time was that it would be a tiered organizational structure that you would have NPR in Washington providing the national overlay, but it would really be the member stations at the local level that would provide the diversity of voices, the diversity of programming at the local level that would then uh, provide sort of this balance, this sort of collective balance that would become NPR. Uh, I interviewed again, uh, Bill Seamering, who was one of the early architects of NPR. And he said, you know, honestly, we thought that local stations were going to be much more content producers, that they would deliver the content, and it never became that thing. Um, so now what you have today is NPR Washington. It's, it's almost flipped that, where NPR Washington provides pretty much most of the flagship programming. And then you have kind of a feast or famine at the local level. You have those that are based in cities that can be somewhat content producers, like um, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Uh, KPCC down in Los Angeles, uh, but if you're or if you're KPCC here, you can't afford that. You can't afford journalists. You don't have the resources to do it. So there's sort of a feast or famine, uh, depending on where you are. And so that tiered organizational organizational structure never really worked that way. Uh, but when it first launched in 1970, it had 88 stations representing non-commercial community radio stations across the country. Uh, but again, I want to kind of reiterate this point that it had two clear mandates. Uh, that radio would serve a broader, more inclusive definition of public. So that becomes very clear. Uh, and when you read that original mission statement written by Bill Singering, it's beautifully written, beautifully inclusive. It, it creates a vision for NPR uh, that you're like, that's the system we should have and we want to have. Uh, but second, that it, it would engage listeners civically. Uh, and again, they were very deliberate about this point. It wouldn't be passive listening. But by listening to this program, you might engage your local government. Uh, you might go out and um, again register to vote, or at least to be active in politics in in, um, in a much more active way than you would get in normal radio systems. And so you have this lofty vision from Bill Shanery in 1970. Again, it celebrates difference. It celebrates the unique voices. It says it will speak in different dialects, and the intention was that you have a much different. Um, um, Kind of iteration of, of what you would see. But almost immediately it becomes not that. It, it becomes almost the opposite of that. And this becomes very evident within the first couple of years. Uh, so almost immediately it becomes very apparent that NPR is not. 
And so within the first six years, the Carnegie Commission, uh, Commission's observant panel, where it starts to audit public radio, and it mm -hmm. says, nope, it seems to be serving really the most exclusive listener, and it's having problems serving a really kind of disenfranchised listener. Uh, and again, that's not what it's meant to be. So already starting to see people flag it. Uh, in 1977, the Task Force for Minorities in Public Broadcasting issues a scathing report titled The Formula for Change. Uh, and there they really call uh, Corporation for Public Broadcasting out in both arms, both PBS and PC, uh, NPR, uh, for lack of minority ownership. What were the years of the commission and the task? So that was 1977. Okay. So 70 years into the life of NPR. Okay. Uh, they, they say that public radio is asleep at the transmitter. Um, so <laughs> again, they, they did not miss words. Uh, and actually they felt like they were not heard and they disbanded it after about a year because they felt like nobody was, was really listening to the, uh, to the recommendations of the task force. Mm -hmm. But they did for a short time establish something called the Department of Specialized Audiences where they're <laughs> saying, okay, we're gonna do something that actually um, uh, you know, might serve audiences that we're not thinking about. We need to figure out this way to kind of figure out, uh, talk to audiences uh, that are not this exclusively white, privileged, well-educated, uh, economically advantaged audience. And then financial pressures now. So there's this good intention. You start to see some movement in this area, uh, but around the same time, it becomes obvious that NPR is unsustainable, right? The way that it's funded, uh, it's constantly hand in hat for funding, going to the US Congress for appropriations. And so these pressures then really push it in the direction in which it, where it is today. Uh, and I love this quote from David Giamanini, who is an NPR researcher uh, with their arm audience research analysis. And he talks, I think for me, about this crux between how you define the audience and then what happens to programming once you define the audience in that way, right? Because it becomes iterative. He says that programming is a lot like bait. What we catch depends on what we set out. Honey draws bees, forms lower fish, a hunk of liver will bring in straight cats to the door. Why you want that? I don't know. In the same way, certain kinds of pro, uh, listeners are attracted to certain kinds of programming. And so when we choose what we air, we also select who will listen and also who won't. Mm -hmm. And that's the crux of it, right? And so around this time, this is 1980, uh, you see a pivot for NPR. Up until this point, information on listeners were pretty ad hoc. Um, many NPR station managers just didn't think that was their mission, that they were meant to serve the public, writ large. Um, but you start to see a very overt strategy on NPR's part to then start to segment uh, and to start to really hone in borrowing practices from the marketing industry. And so they really start, you have a public radio system then starting to implement marketing practices. And so in this case, they have two reports, Audience 88, 10 years later, Audience 98, and then a whole series of reports that really go into honing in on who the audience would be. And again, they bring in this practice of market segmentation, where it means that you'll take the public at large or the audience at large, and then to start to segment it into finite, identifiable, cohesive groups. And this will allow you to efficiently channel resources. And so, you know, I teach advertising, it's a practice that we teach often, uh, but it's a way to, um, again, efficiently channel resources, meaning that you're not gonna talk to everybody, but you're really gonna hone in on a very specific audience. So the question then becomes, who's that audience then you're going to hone in on and who's going to be part of it and who's not going to be part of it. And so there's kind of three interesting rhetorical moves that happen at this point. Uh, the first part is just you justify that decision, right? And they do this pretty, um, you know, squarely. 
uh, they talk about it just being an issue of practical considerations, right? Um, and almost being unrealistic if you're going to speak to the public at large, right? How could you do that with one station? And in some ways they have a point, um, but on the other hand, to do it so kind of um, overtly, I think is, is pretty interesting here. But they say, okay, it's, it's very impractical to think that we're actually going to talk to everybody. So we have to make this move in order to, to, to identify who we want to talk to. The second step, well, then you identify your ideal listener, your targeted listener. And here's where they really turn into market segmentation and some of the models that were being used at the time. Um, and so there's this quote from the report that, again, pretty blatant, listeners who have more money can give more money, which tells you a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, but they borrowed uh, a segmentation model called values and lifestyle segments, vowels, mm -hmm. uh, and they focused on two of, uh, kind of a crossover between two of these segments, the actualizer, the fills. Uh, so the actualizers are the ones that have abundant resources. So they're not the ones that are struggling. They're not the disenfranchised. They're not the poor. They are the people that, if you have more money, you can give more money. But they're also fulfilled, meaning that they're not necessarily in it for monetary goods. They are actively engaged. They're civically engaged. So this is probably somebody that's already overserved in civic discourses. They're already civically engaged uh, because they're inclined to do so. And so they kind of went into the circular logic of, well, we're going to focus on people that actually listen to public radio. So rather than kind of expand their base, we're like, okay, we're going to go after those, and we're just going to get more of them. And we're going to do it through programming. And then step three, you opt in for a colorblind approach. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some really interesting kind of rhetorical moves that are happening here. One is the appropriation of the language of the civil rights movement. And so they call it as sort of this, this distinction between a strategy of targeting and a strategy of this uh, transcendence. And they're saying like, yeah, you can go through these two choices, a strategy of targeting where you kind of, I guess, essentialize people according to their race and ethnicity, or the strategy of transcendence where you find some commonalities between everybody, right? And I love the, the one at the bottom where, yeah, um, strategy to transcend racial heritage, it's a strategy, um, and the strategy to target are at direct philosophical odds. Targeting strategy emphasizes differences in our racial and cultural backgrounds. The transcendent strategy, which is one that they were opting for, emphasizes similarities in our characters, uh, except the, the, I, the similarities in characters were everybody that was highly educated, highly affluent, highly connected. Uh, again, the, the trick to that was then to define, because they knew that they weren't speaking to African-American listeners, Latinx listeners, um, was to reconceptualize those audiences in terms of the, the ideal audience. And so the ones that they were going to pursue were um, uh, Latinos with master's degrees, highly educated, highly affluent, and they argued that over time, the number of that audience would just grow. Uh, and so then you would kind of increase the representation of your targeted audiences over time. And so a whole series of, of moves happen around this time. And again, they really doubled down on this position. Um, and Folk and Nacional was a program that was uh, based out of Southern California, uh, but was airing on NPR nationally. It was a Spanish language program that emerged out of this program called the Department of Specialized Audiences. Uh, meant to speak to Latino listeners, they got rid of that. And one of their arguments was that, well, we don't really speak to Spanish-speaking consumers. Uh, we're going to leave that for Spanish-language commercial radio, uh, which was interesting for a couple of uh, moves because one, uh, all of a sudden, NPR doesn't position itself as America's public broadcasting network, but rather is just another media property in the commercial marketplace, in the media marketplace. Uh, so they're competing alongside Spanish-language commercial radio stations. The second is this sort of abdication of, of the moral responsibility of public radio, uh, where commercial radio was just seen as equally as viable 
uh, to NPR. And so they had sort of stepped away from this role of the unique mission of public radio, uh, at least rhetorically, uh, and under certain kinds of conditions. So that's one um, aspect of it. The second is, is another practice called the disciplining of, of Latinx voice. Um, and this kind of raises a whole other set of issues about language ideologies and the use of voice. And so uh, I start with this quote by Arthur Lloyd James, and, and it presents kind of an interesting issue at the onset of, of radio and how uh, uh, the BBC uh, incorporated it at the same time, which is that you have one broadcasting system that is gonna reach out to the masses. In theory, that mass is linguistically diverse. They speak in different kinds of accents, in some cases, different languages altogether. So how do you choose one voice that will represent the public? And it's a challenge, right? And so that becomes the kind of the question of, of the study, right? Whose voice then becomes the voice of the American public? What does it sound like? What accent does it have? Uh, and oftentimes what you find is that it represents a very specific kind of voice. In the BBC's version, they had a very specific mission for BBC, which was to educate the masses. They saw themselves as sort of an uplift um, type of, of program. And so it was a very patrician kind of uh, accent. It was British received pronunciation. And in fact, they had an entire committee set up at the time to police language, right? Because words that we take for granted now that are now standardized at the time were not standardized. Uh, less words like, I think, ski, right? In some regions were pronounced she, right? It, it didn't have the kind of the consistent standardization that we have today, but it was broadcast radio's uh, job at the time to standardize language, right? And once you fix language, it becomes dead. Um, and so starting off with, the, I guess the point was that, you know, the beauty of human speech is that we're diverse, right? We speak in different kinds of ways. The way that we speak marks who we are, our journeys, where we come from, our backgrounds, um, our journeys over time. You know, the body is the inside of incorporated history. Um, so what I found with NPR is that NPR has cultivated an ideal dialect, one that is intended to mimic spontaneous conversation, but which is in fact highly scripted. And so they always say like, we want you to talk to your, um, to your listeners if it were a friend. I guess it depends on who your friend is, right? <laughs> my friend may sound different from your friend. You know, my friend from where I grew up might sound very different. And so, but that pretense, right? There is one ideal friend, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the second that it's uh, one that is generally devoid of regional and ethnic accent, what sociolinguists refer to as standard American English, um, which in turn has shut out speakers of stigmatized varieties. And so in some ways, uh, conversations are around SAE are similar to conversations around whiteness, meaning that it's, uh, defined in terms of what it's not. So to be white is not to be black, it's not to be Latinx, it's not to be Jewish. Uh, in, in ways to speak a standard American English is not to speak with Puerto Rican accent or Mexican accent, uh, hillbilly, poor, right? So that's the standard that's left over, which makes in some ways auditing diversity on public radio a little bit different than what you might find in movies or in something that is more visually oriented because you can have diversity, but not have diversity. In fact, many of the journalists of color that broadcast on NPR, you know, a lot of people are surprised to find out that Adi Cornish is black, mm -hmm. right? Because she speaks in standard American English. She's not marked ethnically or racially. Um, and so I found, I'll start with this one. So I, in 2015, Tenjirai Kumanika wrote a piece in Transom where he talks about sort of this moment of disciplining his voice. Uh, so he's an NPR contributor, has written pieces for NPR, um, is a professor, just a, a brilliant scholar all around. Uh, but he talks about sort of this moment of writing for NPR and then just his voice gravitating to what he thinks an NPR voice sounds like, right? It becomes very kind of conflicting for him, right? And it's like, that's not my voice. That's not how I speak. And so I interviewed him for this piece. 
Um, and he talks about sort of the, the kind of the, the implicit pressures, right? This sort of internal voice that you hear and try to modulate your voice so that it, it fits what you think NPR is, but also some of the explicit pressures to modu modulate your voice, working with uh, producers and news directors to say, okay, this is how you should sound. Uh, and so there are finding ways that language is policed in different kinds of ways. Uh, one is linguistic habitudes, right? So by the time that many people get to that job at NPR, they have been groomed in a way, either because of their personal backgrounds, their academic backgrounds, their professional training, so that their way of speaking is completely congruent with the voice that you're gonna hear on NPR. By the time they walk into that room, I see it happen with my students all the time, Peter, you may find it, where that you see them modulate their voices so that it's gonna be appropriate for the broadcast standard. Um, moments of, of self-correction, uh, that Dr. Kuminika talks about, um, Pierre Bordeaux calls, calls it hypercorrection, right? Mm -hmm. So we modulate our voices, you know, for the occasion. Uh, and then I've also found that listener feedback was uh, highly, highly pleased. If people didn't, if you spoke with an accent, and many of the practitioners spoke to this, it was noted. Uh, and sometimes it was noted very publicly and very derogatively. Mm -hmm. uh, and so listeners often become the, the sort of the policing of these boundaries. Uh, and then there are formal mechanisms, things like style guides that say, this is how you should pronounce the word Paris, not Paris because Paris is gonna disrupt the listening conversation. Uh, and so there are highly regimented ways in which we pronounce specific kinds of words in language. Uh, these are voice coaches, editors, producers, and then uh, a kind of important time is just time limitations. Uh, so the kind of the restrictions over time, and speaking of time, um, I was gonna have you listen to kind of the very first episode of All Things Considered because Dr. Kumanik says, listen to that first episode. You know, one of the things that you're going to listen to is that first, the very first voice, the very first voice you hear on All Things Considered is a Black nurse. And then the whole segment takes place over the course of 30 minutes. And in the course of that 30 minutes, you hear really rich, diverse voices, uh, voices mm -hmm. from Philly, voices from New York, uh, the broadcaster, but you hear a whole linguistic range. What has happened since then is those segments have gotten shorter and shorter and shorter, which means there's a heavier reliance on expert sources, which means you're shutting out uh, the voices of working class people, of ethnic minorities. Um, and so the, the kind of the time limitations and the structure of speech and talk uh, becomes an important way of policing, again, whose voices get to be heard and those who do not. Um, kind of an interesting case study for me on this is A. Martinez. When I interviewed A. Martinez, who is now uh, the host of Morning Edition, he wasn't at the time. I don't think I could have gotten this interview if I interviewed him today. He probably would not have spoken to me, but at the time he did. Um, he was at KPCC in Southern California. And so I met with him, KSPC in Southern California, and I met with him in Pasadena. Uh, his was an interesting story because when he was hired, he was hired on a grant uh, because uh, the station at the time was, was really trying to make an overt effort. LA is um, predominantly, a, it's a Latinx city. And so, um, he, the kind of the kind of racialized discourse that happened around the time that he was hired was severe. Uh, and so if, if you ever get a chance to read the LA Weekly article around this time, uh, it's really disparaging. Uh, in fact, the, the very first question that, that he asked me is like, do you know what the word swarthy means? Because that's what I was called, you know, <laughs> I was called uh, Madeline Brand's swarthy new co-host. I had to look it up, it meant racist or it meant dark skin. And so, um, so, anyways, so it was really just, um, and so you're taught to have that voice. He is one of the few exceptions of it. And so sports radio is very bombastic, right? And he you know, reports on the Dodgers. And so he has this style that it's much more uh, emotive. 
there's much more highs, emotional, and he talks about sort of struggling with it, right? Here I am at this public radio station, uh, and I have to learn to modulate my voice. And he talks about it, and he talks about sort of, the, again, the political implications of this, right? Because, you know, you know, this way of speaking is, you know, highly educated, he calls it snooty, elevated way of speaking, and he calls it out. Um, and uh, he's like, that's what public radio should fix about itself. Um, because most people are not, right? Most people don't have a master's degree. Most people aren't highly um, educated or well-connected. Um, but it's interesting because in the time that I spoke to him, he now has moved on to um, uh, Morning Edition and his voice has now become complete. That, that transition that he started off from his Dodgers day uh, to when I interviewed him, Tori's to date, that transformation is now complete. And he sounds like Ari Shapiro. Like he doesn't sound <laughs> from anybody else, but he has learned to master uh, that NPR way of speaking and in doing so has left so much off the table, right? Mm -hmm. So that's been part of the conversation with that. Um, so with the second, so I know I presented a lot of problems, a lot of industry constraints. And, and so with the second half of the book, I really wanted to pivot towards moments of subversion, right? Where are these places within the public radio system that allow for opportunities uh, to assert different points of views, to sometimes challenge the constraints placed by NPR itself? Uh, and so I focused on three different case studies, uh, Latino USA, Radio Melante, and Off Latino. Simile for simile. Off Latino. Uh, and, so, um, and so I started each chapter, and, and I didn't know it at the time, but sort of looking at the rest, but which, which was violence against Latinx bodies. Sort of this moment, whether by a gunman or by the state, uh, that happened where uh, there was violence against the Latinx body and the, me the media's failure to capture that moment. And there was something in mainstream media, and then these these entities come in and then are able to tell these stories. So there's the strange death of Jose de Jesus, who committed suicide in the Eli Detention Center. Um, and it became sort of a, a, an indictment of detention centers in general, mental health resources that are available. Um, there was the shooting in El Paso, Texas, uh, several years ago, in which white gunmen um, killed because he was worried about uh, a Hispanic takeover of uh, white Texas uh, in this border town, right? Which was, um, you know, biculturalism, bilingualism had been a reality for hundreds of years, right? And so there's these discourses. And the one that I focused on, I think for, for um, at least the alt Latino chapter uh, was the death of, um, you know, 22 Mexican migrants in a plane. Um, it was a, uh, an event that was covered by uh, Woody Guthrie, who wrote a, a poem about it, about this moment. And so I just wanted to read briefly from the book uh, a bit of that chapter, because I think it sets up uh, so much of this. On January 28, 1948, the US Immigration Service chartered a World War II surplus DC-3 from airline transport carriers of Burbank to transport 28 migrant workers from Oakland to the deportation center of El Centro, California. Some of the migrants were part of the government-sponsored Bracero program, while others had come to the United States without documents. Somewhere over the ranches on the edge of the Diablo Range, 20 miles west of Coalinga, the plane began trailing black smoke. Rancher W.L. Childers reported that the plane was about 5,000 feet when he noticed that smoke from the left engine of the two-engine plane. Then the wing fell off, the fuselage plummeted nose first, and it fell. Childers said several passengers either jumped or fell to their deaths. There were no survivors. The next day, the crash received national news coverage in which the crew was identified as Frank Atkinson, the pilot from Long Beach, his wife, Bobby Atkinson, and Marion Ewing, the plane's co-pilot. 
The Immigration Services Guard was identified as Frankie Schaffin of Berkeley. But when it came time to identifying the Mexican passengers, the report fails to name the, the names of those who perished, instead describing them collectively by their immigration status. Both the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times quoted Irving Wixon, the director of the Federal Immigration Service, who described the deceased. The group included Mexican, quote, the group included Mexican nationals who entered the United States illegally and others who stayed beyond the duration of work contracts in California. All were agricultural workers. Moved by the incident, folk singer Woody Guthrie wrote a poem that called attention to the dehumanizing practices of the news media, which rendered the migrants invisible. In it, Guthrie reimagines re these migrants as individuals who are leaving their friends and lovers to travel to the United States to grow crops only to be humiliated. Quote, you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, Guthrie wrote, and all they will call you is deportee. Titled Deportee, Plain Rank at Los Gatos, the poem was later set to music by school teacher Martin Hoffman and became a favorite of folk singers and social activists, having been covered by artists including Pete Seeger, Judy Collins, and Joan Baez. Um, and I go on to write about how um, Latino then created a podcast which it focused on this particular song. And in some ways, the podcast was doing what Guthrie itself was trying to do, was to provide a human face to the people that are sometimes rendered invisible in media. And so I'd say that's a consistent theme with all of these strength programs was to try to reclaim the humanity of US Latinos that are often left uh, unaddressed in uh, mainstream media. Uh, and so I'll go a little bit more quickly through these. I think a, a common commonality on each of these is that each row, uh, show reflects the economic, demographic, and technological disruptions that are occurring at the time. Uh, so when Latino USA was launched in 1993, uh, uh, there were disruptions that were happening in the public media landscape, which pivoted from NPR produced podcasting or um, uh, events to something that was more sort of uh, independent producers. And so they were able to take advantage of that and then the system of uh, terrestrial radio. Um, I also argue that Latino practitioners, practitioners have been able to exploit these disruptions in the public radio system to their advantage, but they do differ in how they imagine the ideal Latino listener and the ways in which they use language to reach their intended audience. Uh, I'd say in all cases, not anybody can produce a podcast and have it receive uh, attention on NPR, that it's highly selective and it's in some cases a smaller miracle. Uh, but in these cases, these practitioners have been able to leverage some degree of professional, cultural, or social capital to their advantage to make this happen. Uh, and I'd say all of these were just savvy business people, right? They, they learned to use a savvy market framework to operate in a business that is essentially a market system. Uh, so we focus a little bit on Latin um, USA, Radio Mialante. Uh, the interesting thing about Radio Mialante is their story is almost the inverse from Latin USA in that they started completely as a digital platform. Uh, and so they're able to make use of it. Uh, they, they imagine their audience much more hemispherically. So they're telling stories not only about US Latinos living in Southern California or Miami, uh, but from Bogota, from, um, from Spain. Uh, so they're, they're thinking much, much more uh, globally. And then Alt Latino, I'd say the one difference here with Alt Latino is that they work within the music genre, which allows them to have certain kinds of counter-hegemonic conversations that you wouldn't be able to have on a news-oriented network. So, uh, so they play with genre in order to have much more subversive uh, conversations uh, within that. Uh, I guess the last question and then leave some room for questions. Uh, one of the questions I, I still wanted to come back to was civic engagement, uh, because that, that's, you know, the founding documents are dripping with this idea that you engage the listener civically uh, and that it was meant to cultivate that. And so I went to the, to, to the interviews, looking for the documents to say, 
is there any evidence? You know, what does civic engagement actually look like? How do you engage people civically? And it became very, very slippery because they don't, right? And so um, key takeaways through all of this is that NPR has over time become a media company that's driven by marketplace logic, which in turn dictates how they're gonna contact their listener. Uh, so they've cultivated a passive rather than active listening uh, experience. Something that they're not really intended, because I even asked Bill Seamering, you know, like you say civic engagement, how does this happen? Because when he talks about it, it's very, very lofty. And he talked about it as being sort of this horizontal form of communication uh, where NPR can start a conversation with a civic institution, with then start a conversation with the audience. And, and I'm like, describe that to me. Tell me how that actually works. But what he's actually describing is a, horiz a, a, a vertical form of communication, which where information comes to the top, and then it's communicated to the stations at the bottom and to the audience. But there's no intention that there's actually going to be any kind of conversation that's happening between and amongst institutions. Uh, and so it's really sort of a passive listening, and they aren't really interesting. In fact, their journalistic ethos, I think, prohibits them from actually um, entering into kind of what they call like advocacy. Like once you become an advocacy, you're now in no man's land uh, because you're no longer a journalist, you're no longer objective. Um, it's interesting to note that most of this book was written during the Trump administration, where journalists of color, particularly Latinx journalists, uh, were negotiating this tension right? because they felt personally attacked. They knew that these communities were being very, very targeted, uh, and yet they had to work within this framework of, of NPR's um, uh, orthodox approach to journalism. And so, um, anyways, uh, so as I mentioned, they target a listener that has significant amounts of economic, cultural, and social capital. So that means that their ideal Latinx listener is that when that was congruent with that listener, uh, they call it that you need to add listener. You don't want to replace listener. So any effort that they make to expand and to reach out to Latinos is not going to mean that they're going to replace it with their legacy audience. So it has to add on to it, which means there has to be some congruence between the two, uh, which means that they've ultimately failed in their position to serve the most disenfranchised listeners. Um, and with this, the Thanks for telling me that I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I think for me, this is what was one of the kind of the most sobering parts of it is the, the distinction between public and commercial radio has all but disappeared. And even if you go on to, uh, so I'm going to speak to, to Southern California Public Radio in a couple of weeks. Uh, if you go on to their programming format, they have all things considered, a public radio property, but they also have, um, what is it, uh, Michael Barbaro at New Yorker, you know, the, the New York Times commercial radio, the New Yorker Radio Hour, commercial radio. And so you have these properties of commercial radio and non-commercial radio existing seamlessly side by side. Uh, but there are also some possibilities within that framework, right? If you're gonna live and die with a market framework, mm -hmm. uh, that means that you're gonna open yourself up to competitors that are gonna outdo you, that are gonna out NPR, NPR, which is where we are today. And so the postscript to this, so one of the cautions for anybody doing work on a contemporary media institution is the minute that you submit that piece for publication, everything will change. Right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes good ways, sometimes bad ways. And so uh, the, the month that this book came out, there was a, a, a really highly visible exodus of journalists of color at NPR, Buddy mm -hmm. Cornish, Lulu Garcia Navarro, Sam Sanders more recently, uh, Noel King, uh, even uh, Marina Hosa uh, left NPR as their main distributor and went to PRX. And so you had these huge um exoduses and so i guess two things become clear to me with this is one it, it when you look at a 50-year history it can become very discouraging because you think nothing changes right the conversations that we're having today in 2022 
are not unlike the conversations we had 10 years ago and 20 years before that and 30 years before that, that over 50 years, nothing has really essentially changed. Um, the second thing that comes out about this is that um, there's a lot of navel-gazing that happens uh, when moments like this happen. And that's what NPR did was that, okay, you can make some short-term tactics, like maybe we'll make a couple of strategic hires, uh, maybe we'll add a show here or show there, but there is never a consideration of the thing itself, a, a wholesale reconceptualization of what this thing has become. And so any kind of change is going to be cosmetic, right? There's not going to be any kind of substantive change to how they, they do the things that they do. Um, and so that becomes a much, much harder prospect for them. Uh, and so we're gonna have this conversation, I suspect in five years and in another five years after that, uh, there doesn't seem to be any inclination that um, NPR is motivated to change in any kind of meaningful way. Um, so I'll leave on that positive note, <laughs> open it up to, to any kinds of, of questions that you might have. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. I learned a lot. Um, I'm so I'm wondering a couple questions. One is like, so what is the uh, current uh, Latino listenership to NPR, and how has that changed over time? If it if it has at all. And then I'm wondering if you've ever if you've looked um, done any like kind of cursory comparison, like compared like to African Americans. Primarily, I guess, would be the comparable group in terms of NPR. Yeah, so I, I didn't do comparative, um, but I did. I think currently six percent of listenership is is Latinx, which isn't that much greater than it was, you know, in 1970. Um, so there there hasn't been a huge amount of gains there. And same with newsroom staff. I mean, they they remain relatively low compared to our numbers overall. Peter, so you you. Uh... Slam our brethren here severely, but the, the period you looked at is concurrent with the collapse for the most part of the three networks that held the position historically of this mainstream or whatever the right term is of production of news and information for America. So, how much is uh, NPR at fault for doing something egregiously negative, and how much did they just replace ABC, NBC, and CBS where there was a need? Yeah, and in some ways, I think there's because it exists as part of this media ecosystem, and so I think kind of what's interesting here, and I didn't get to this, is that it's interesting to find out who these folks are, are leaving for, mm -hmm. right? So they're not leaving for other public radio networks, you know, and that, that used to be a system where it was closed. If you, you know, were groomed in, in public radio, you stayed in public radio and that channel was pretty finite. They're leaving for CNN, they're leaving for the New York Times. These are commercial radio systems, yeah. which means that that kind of distinction has blown up. I think the opportunity there is that you have really strong talent that now has other options, right? So if they hit a log jam at NPR, they can now go somewhere else, get paid more money, do similar kinds of work. Uh, again, it, it's sad that the, the missions are, are now the same. Uh, so there is kind of no unique mission for NPR or public radio in the marketplace. And that's, that's the sad part for me. Uh, so they're all kind of doing similar kinds of work. But I think you're right. I mean, it's part of this ecosystem. And now that's just sort of been laid, laid bare. Sure, um, thank you. This is such an amazing project. 
I'm curious about the economic dimension of it. So you talked about the audience, the intended audience, the ideal audience, and what that audience might look like and sound like. But I'm curious also about the the, the, the funders, the donors, who are just as much, if yeah. not right, primarily the intended audience. Uh, and and if if we're thinking about the kind of the socioeconomic dimension of what you describe, wouldn't then the concern kind of also be about white capital in the United States and, and about um, in, in, you know those economic socioeconomic disparities that influence not just NPR but so many other institutions yeah, with absolutely. the privileged whiteness at the level of voice at the level of just all kinds of all kinds of, all kinds of levels. So De definitely, I think corporate sponsors play a prominent role in sort of NPR's funding model. And so listener subscriptions are, you know, a portion of that. I, I know the argument is always around state subsidies and federal subsidies, but that's becoming less and less important as they turn to alternative revenue streams like corporate sponsorships. Uh, so marketplaces is sort of the exemplar of that program that, that kind of reflects now the ethos of NPR, you know, where you have these middle managers that are checking their investments, listening to NPR and having these, these driveway moments in their BMWs and their, you know, <laughs> And so, um, so that, yeah, I think it very much dictates sort of the, the kind of the ethos of, of NPR and kind of what they, they program. Thank you. It's a terrific book. Thank you. Read it. <laughs> yes. Yes, I'm struck by your postscript, uh, which shows, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, five women and there's one man. And your mission statement for peak. NPR originally, uh, can you just bring that up? It was it was really um, strange or odd sounding. Um, yes. Yeah, it just says men on there. It just says yeah. men. It doesn't say humankind or mankind. It says men. Yeah. And I was really struck by that because. There was one other uh, slide which you showed really what were the founding mothers of NPR. I mean, Susan Stamberg, uh, Linda Wertheimer, Koki Roberts, Nina Totenberg. And it was almost, uh, I would say, poignant because uh, Susan Stamberg was the first host of NPR, of uh, Morning Edition yeah. show. And she was very reluctant to do it because she said, I don't have a radio voice. You know, you've got to tell me what sort of voice to use. And the producer said, well, how about your own voice? Uh, and she says, but that's just me. That's just my own voice. You know, that's somehow unacceptable. And if you look at it over a sort of continuum of these sort of deep male voices, which are intoning over the radio, uh, Edward R. Murrow, Bush Radio, the yeah. TV. There is, there is a real sort of confusion about what you can actually do on a radio program. And of course, a half century has passed. Mm -hmm. And we're now very, very familiar with all sorts of uh, women or female voices on NPR. Mm -hmm. So if you contrast that mission statement, the lofty vision, which looks kind of narrow to me, even though it, it, it sort of mm -hmm. concentrates on inclusivity, anything uh, about women. Yeah. Uh, and and that, that did come up in the literature where um, NPR was seen as a gendered voice, especially during that particular moment in which it lost work. 
um, I think the broadcast standard, they call it the, the voice of God. It's sort of a very uh, masculine, authoritative voice uh, that, that uh, news broadcasters particularly had at the time. And so to have women broadcasters was meaningful at the time. Uh, again, um, you know, the, the meaning of the voice is relative to the other voices that are out in the point in time uh, within the marketplace. So there's been some change since then. But uh, very early on, NPR uh, was seen as a gendered voice, primarily a female voice. Mm -hmm. So let me just interrupt you for a moment. It's one o'clock. I just want to give people who need to leave the opportunity to leave again. Let's thank Chris and Chris. Sure, yeah. Yes, uh, I listened to uh, what you were saying some ways. Uh -huh. And so, would you characterize that as a somewhat compact hegemonic or somewhat disruptive? Or... So, I couldn't quite get what you're saying about Yeah, so a little bit of both. So, I love the work that Marina Hosa does. I think she calls attention to stories. When you look at some of the stories that she's done, it's, it's a catalog of, of the US Latinx experience over the course of the past you know, 30 years since 1993. Uh, and so I think she covers stories that that mainstream news organizations would not do. I think after spending time with her and her team in Harlem, what I'm not quite sure of is whether she's actually talking to Latino listeners um, or whether she's talking about Latino listeners to primarily educated white audiences. And I, I, I've never been able to kind of figure that out based on the numbers. Um, her listenership is not primarily Latinx. It's primarily white. Um, she does have a, a growing listenership in Latinx, but Sort of that distinction between are you actually talking to an audience or are you selling that audience to another kind of listener is still something I'm not I'm not quite clear of even after having spent time. I don't want to I don't want to take this too long, but um, I do have a question too. Are there and I don't know if you've done this research, but are there other models of uh, public radio nationally in, in countries or otherwise that strike you as doing better? And I say this is somebody who. Um, I don't know, people on can't stomach NPR, but sort of enjoy the CBC coming from Canada at times, but they're quite similar in terms of their presumed audience and everything else. And, and so I guess uh, just if there are um, other models where public radio has been done better, um, if you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I interviewed a woman, Giselle Regatau, and she is, um, um, she said, she tells a story about producing a story and it gets rejected by NPR because it's, she has an accent. So she's Brazilian, she speaks with a slight Brazilian accent, but it not incomprehensible, right, to English monolingual ears. And so she talks about taking that same story and then go to um, American public media. Um, and so the public radio international. And so she spent some time there and it's a completely different experience. They're much more open to diversity of voices. Uh, they're much more kind of open to our story. I have found that NPR is particularly conservative um, in its approach compared to public radio international where you're more likely to have voices with accents. You're more likely to have untranslated actualities that are out there. Uh, so there's a kind of a, a more of a, you know, a, appreciation for diversity that happens there. I think part of what's driving NPR's conservative nature, and, and this was palpable in the interviews that I would listen to, they did not want to lose the listener at any cost. The, the worry was that anything that you would do, any sort of slight, mis, you know, not mispronunciation, different pronunciation of a word, means that that listener would be gone and you'd lose them forever. Right? There was that kind of palpable fear with station managers and news directors. And so I do think there's something particularly conservative. And I think for any public radio international, part of it's driven by the mission, um, looks different, you know, and sounds different. Um, 
Oh, sorry. Chris, you're a manager, general manager of KLCC. Yeah. So you can't fix NPR. How do you fix? What, what do you do there? What do you introduce? Yeah. So, so I'm thinking about this because I'm going to have that conversation with KPC uh, in Southern California. And so, you know, some of these are big issues. Like you're not going to change, kind of, okay, just tear down the whole system and start up from again. Uh, but I kind of talk about change from being conservative to transformative. And so conservative change would be like, okay, I'm going to hire an extra, you know, Spanish-speaking broadcaster. I'm going to do this, and those are kind of cosmetic changes. Uh, we already know we already know what they are. So you hire accordingly. You might invest in some sort of programming. You could reach out to the community. So those have been tried and true, and we've known them for about you know 50 years. Right. So they've already been identified. Complete transformational change would be okay. Let's start from scratch. So if you think what like Netflix did uh, when they realized like okay this model is not sustainable, they completely reinvented themselves. Like, they started from scratch, and they knew they were going to lose people. And then they started again. Uh, so you reconceptualize who your target audience is, and then you create your entire programming based around that audience. And so that means kind of weaning themselves off, not even winning themselves. Because cold turkey, I am not going to talk to an affluent, you know, listener anymore. I'm going to speak to the working class. Um, that's much much harder to do. And then in between that is a whole kind of range of commitments and possibilities. And so how I'm in a position it is like it's what you're willing to stomach, right? And so we know what you need to do, but are you willing to do it? And yeah. so you can kind of move along that spectrum. Oh, sorry. So, so my question um, was about podcasting. Yeah. So obviously in the past decade, there's this new thing that has yeah. just exploded, which is podcasting. And obviously there's many podcasts that have, that are unattached to NPR, yeah. but NPR has a lot of podcasts yeah. and many other media companies have a lot of podcasts. Has that done anything to diversify listenership? It has and it hasn't. So it's increased the amount of content that's available. So there's now more NPR or associated content than ever before. And so what that means is that you can't have a diversity of voices, but the way that NPR curates it and highlights it on their programs is different. And so you can have diversity, but on their on-air experience, it's gonna be all things considered. It's gonna be a morning edition. So they're gonna have a very few limited properties that are gonna dictate essentially the experience, which in turn dictates the brand. Uh, but it does kind of can lay claim to we have the Spanish language program running at Delante that's available out there. We are diverse and they can then leverage it with the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, but they're not necessarily going to support it or it's not going to become central to their identity. So they can have diversity again without having diversity. I think kind of what it also does is it now creates more competition in the marketplace. And so again, there's a, a lot of really good podcasting out there uh, that's done not by NPR. That sounds better than NPR. Um, and so the example that I used is that there was a producer for Latina USA, Nadia Raymond, and she um, was doing great work there. She ends up being uh, recruited by This American Life, and in that role, wins the Pulitzer Prize as part of the team that wins the Pulitzer Prize covering Latinx issues on the border. And so that's the, that's the risk of it, is that somebody better and more resource uh, can come in and then poach NPR talent and then take them away. And so unless NPR kind of they have to figure that out because their, their current model is not sustainable. Do you think if they just owned that they would be commercial radio, that would help them? It, it could, you know, and again, like they have to just sort of, um, I mean, they have a brand and so yeah. they could certainly leverage it. That would be an option. So let's thank Chris Chavez again. Thank you. Thank you.